0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe at theconsumervc.substack.com, where episodes, my own takes, and upcoming events will be delivered straight to your inbox. If you could also leave a review on the Apple Podcast app of the show, that would also be terrific. My guest today is Morgan Hirsch, CEO and founder of Public Goods. Public Goods is your one-stop shop for healthy, sustainable, everyday essentials you can trust. This episode helps to demystify or understand what sustainability really means or, or could mean for consumer products. I also loved hearing Morgan's approach of building public goods in multiple categories rather than just focus on one category. Without further ado, here's Morgan. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you reaching out.
0: No, absolutely. I'm glad that Rick was able to connect us. I would love to learn, what was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship and and kind of led you down this path?
1: I mean, it's just so rewarding, you know, to build something It's so rewarding and Intellectually challenging and creative, and the amount of different fields that you kind of touch in a given day. And then the way your job keeps changing. I mean, from I was just talking to an intern, we had a one on one with an intern, like, where this is the call right before this one and i was asking kind of what he wanted to do and he was saying you know he wanted to be an entrepreneur he wanted to lead people he wanted to inspire people and he was talking about his favorite books i couldn't agree with him more you know i I remember moments you know i was 35 i'd lost a business i moved to new york from montreal and i remember going around the city of somewhere in times square or something there's a one minute pitch event And, you know, I didn't have money. I'd moved to a new city. I was in my mid-30s. Things hadn't worked out, but it didn't matter. I was... You know, I was happy, I was doing it, I was in the city, I was pitching, I had 60 seconds to convey my idea. And I think if you enjoy just the process of that learning and trying to build and trying to make things happen from nothing with people and with products, there's just nothing more exciting. And you know, I think, yeah, you just feel the impact of everything you do at every stage. So it's, it's a, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a rewarding career path, maybe even regardless of what happens.
0: Totally. Totally. And I appreciate you sharing that and kind of uh, walking us through that. I'd love to learn about what was maybe the insight or your approach to entrepreneurship that led you to founding public goods and also maybe your prior ventures, but how did you go from idea? And concepts all the way to you know. Okay, I'm actually gonna jump all in here, and and this could actually be an actual business.
1: You know, some entrepreneurs maybe are more courageous than I am, and they you know invent something that just changes a total behavior completely. You know, they say, oh, you know, we think people are gonna just spend hours and hours scrolling through comments, and they just know that that's gonna be you know something that that will exist. And you know, but I, I actually. Well, had a less sort of courageous approach. I kind of invested in what I thought would stay the same. And, you know, we wanted to make essential products, shampoo and toilet paper. I just believe people were going to keep using those products. So, you know, I felt that in a sense, my vision was relatively low risk. I saw an opportunity because the companies that were selling these everyday products weren't really thinking about sustainability. They weren't really thinking about health. They weren't really thinking about design, you know, that that I come from sort of a fashion background and you know design is really important. And it kind of almost completely disappeared when you walked into the CPG world. You looked at shampoos and, you know, the look of the bottles really designed for a drugstore rather than, than, than your home. So for me, the opportunity was clear but the the risk was in a sense low because i i know that people are going to keep using these products and need these products and i believe that i could do it better make them better i believe that people were kind of missing uh what was really important around sustainability design and health so you know i also had a manufacturing background so i also had kind of prior knowledge that There are just, you know, hundreds, thousands of small manufacturers across the United States and the world that you can just reach out to of all different sizes, because I was one of them, and, you know, can develop and help you develop these products. So, you know, I just, I remember moving to New York, it was a guy who's now my co-founder, also named Mike, Uh, he was out of town traveling, so he lent me his apartment. And I just got on the phone and started, you know, calling manufacturers up, you know, googling, calling manufacturers and saying, okay, I have this idea. I want to create one place where people can get, you know, healthy, sustainable essentials. I want to simplify it. I, you know, you make bar soap. Like, would you, you know, could could you make our bar soap? And, you know, and ended up visiting a bar soap manufacturer in in, in Memphis and and other producers in, in New Jersey and going around and visiting manufacturers. Then I convinced the guy whose apartment I was staying at who as an engineer convinced him to join me and to invest a little bit of money and just step by step we uh, we brought it to life
0: that's awesome where does i guess your focus on sustainability come from Is that something that always had kind of been with you and and something you always kind of thought about? Or was that also gifted to you when you really thought about public goods and just maybe shaping your company?
1: I think it's just existential. I think all the things that we value at public goods are really just basic human things that any new brand that's launching does and should and rightfully considers, right? You're building a product from scratch, but I don't think it's malicious. I think the only reason that these things weren't considered or a lot of companies are doing damage is maybe not that sinister. It's just, it wasn't really, they weren't aware when they launched 20, 30, 40 years ago, and now they've built this kind of negative machine. So starting building something now, and I think entrepreneurs know this. I don't think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are saying, oh, I'm going to, build something that hurts the world, right? You know, I think we're all there trying to do something good and trying to build something that helps the world. So when we think about sustainability, that's just like where we live. Like, are we not going to destroy our environment? Forget about the environment as like a concept, just literally like our environment. Like her, you know, so yeah, you know, this is where we live. So that's existential health. Developing products that are healthy, right? Again, it's existential. And for me, simple and beautiful, also, right? When you think about beauty, and that that's one of our values, and one of the forgotten values, I think in CPG, also, I think is pretty innate desire. When we think about, you know, our vacations, uh, you know, we want to see beautiful landscapes, our partners, you know, and often these days, how we find them, it's like an image, right? That you're, you know, that people are swiping through. It's like we care about aesthetic and beauty. And so, you know, to me, that was equally existential, if you will, or equally human, I suppose would be a better way to say it. So we just built the company kind of on what I think are sort of the most fundamental values we could.
0: I love that. I love that. And, you know, the hard part I'd imagine with sustainability is having that deeply rooted into your supply chain and making sure there's quality assurance at each step of the way. What were maybe some of the things that you did very early on just to, it could be like processes or picking the right manufacturer, right? But maybe what were some of the processes, I guess, that you went through in order to make sure that from the very, very beginning you were making sustainable products?
1: Yeah, we started with one product and then, you know, another, we launched with 10 products. So, you know, we're doing things one thing at a time. So in that case with the 10 products, you know, we sourced, I learned about different kinds of packaging materials, because obviously that's where the waste comes from. We found a resin made from sugarcane where you can make a plastic, but it's instead of using the fossil fuels and supporting that industry, it's actually a resin made from sugarcane, and so that was kind of a first step. And then you just, you know, we're one one person and two people ultimately. So, you know, with that, we sourced that that manufacturer first ten products. Then we sourced a toilet paper that was tree free, made from bamboo. I think we we're one of First, people to bring that to market. And now, you know, the, the, there's obviously a bunch of us, you know, and so so that was kind of where we started. And really, it's just by, you know, reaching out, asking a lot of questions. And recently, I did it again. You know, we were asking questions around, you know, one company got really into aluminum bottles, and we'd been looking at aluminum bottles years ago. We decided it uses too much energy. And then another company, a competitor, launched aluminum. We thought, oh, well, we understood that this was actually terrible. And so I reached out to, you know, academics at some of you know the top institutions and asked them about that and indeed they said yeah no it sounds good but you know aluminum's not really a great way to go you know and I'm sure I'm sure it's controversial and there's different opinions on that but so we're always trying to kind of you know sharpen the sword and ask those questions and get the best information I think now the company's reached a point where we you know, need to do more than that. And we need to start bringing a lot of that knowledge in-house. And we've just done an RFP for some agencies that specialize in, you know, improving sustainable practices, you know, companies. And so I think it's an ongoing effort.
0: Totally. How did you approach marketing as well early on? And and as well now, do you find that you're still having to like educate your audience or educate folks out there in terms of what truly sustainable means? Or is that something that folks now maybe already know and certainly are thinking about it? So in, in your marketing efforts, you don't have to focus, you don't have to focus quite on like the context of the educational front.
1: Yeah, I think there's the things that we're doing and telling people that we're doing, right? That are the sugarcane plastics or the bamboo toilet paper or planting a tree with every order. Like those kinds of initiatives that are simple enough and easy enough to communicate. Like I said, like I'm still, I'm not really satisfied with that. And even, you know, when we go through the different products. There's a lot of different small things that we're doing, but I want to kind of get into leading with the science, not the sound bites. And I think that this is why we're reaching out. I believe that there's an opportunity to educate and to have more nuanced approaches to sustainability rather than just saying, oh, we're going to use aluminum because, you know, we're going to take the position that there'll be more renewable energy, so it doesn't matter. And so therefore that's, you know, but really get into it. So that's kind of my big project actually for this year is just kind of really diving into it and understanding the nuances. And then at that point, yes, to answer your question, we'll be doing some educating. But I think there's going to be that loop of really, really going deeper now, educating ourselves and, you know, going deeper, analyzing our own supply chain and then taking that and and sharing it customers.
0: That's that's really helpful. How do you approach as well launching new products? I know that you said you started off with 10 initial products. I'd love to, to understand why you chose those 10. And then also how as well you just think about product expansion from that point and as well moving forward into the future?
1: What we're really aiming to build is something as useful as, but opposite to a place like Amazon, right? We want to build one place where people can get everything that they need in their homes, but deliver peace of mind. That they know that if they're buying it from public goods, that this product is healthy it's sustainable it's good value that they don't have to sift through we only have one shampoo and one toilet paper and one tomato sauce and, you know one corn chip because we want people to you know have peace of mind knowing that they don't have to sift through ten thousand different uh, versions of things and not know where they're really getting it from or which vendor or whatever so the assortment then needs to be prioritized right because obviously that's a long-term plan and so we prioritize based on just simply what our customers ask for. And so we're constantly interviewing, surveying, and then we put that through our filter of, okay, so many customers are asking for it. Can we make that product better? Can we deliver that according to our values? And then kind of put it through that filter as part of kind of the sourcing and development process. Early on, in terms of how we chose shampoo and personal care products, I think it was a place to start where in that category in particular, one reason was we could cover a room in the home with 10 products. So we could kind of get that room, own that room. It was also a category where I feel the incumbents, we're really making high margins on these products. I reached out to the CEO of a premium brand and I said, look, I don't understand. I'm going to these manufacturers and I'm getting quotes, $2 for shampoo or whatever the price was, you know, thereabouts to manufacture a cost, first cost. And your shampoo is $40, but nobody's quoting me. No matter what I do, I can't find a $40 shampoo. I want to make the best possible shampoo, but I'm not finding shampoos at 5 Am I like talking to the wrong manufacturers. And this particular CEO of this particular premium brand said, no, my job is just to take a $2 product, convince people that it's worth 40, 50 bucks. That's my job. That's my whole job. So there was big opportunity there with that kind of thinking and that kind of pricing where you could really deliver great value in that category. Um, And, you know, so we expanded in that, you you know, personal care, it's really easier to deliver better value with food products. It's more challenging because the margins aren't there. So kind of, we expanded, we started at a place where we could deliver the best value.
0: Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting hearing about as well, just your example with shampoo and the the actual growth margin there. So what was your approach to fundraising and why did you choose to fundraise as well? Well, we had to fundraise, you know.
1: We're a capital intensive company to some degree. You know, we launch a lot of physical products. We're in the SKU business. We have inventory. And so, you know, we needed to raise money. The process was challenging you know, reaching out to, you no know, VC is old school. It's not democratic. It's not a meritocracy. It's who do you know? And VCs, regardless of their best efforts, they don't talk to you unless you know someone they like, which makes it sort of uh, the club, unfortunately. So I came from Montreal, didn't have uh, an Ivy League background or, you know, know the bright people. So I just went to to meetups and um, just started, you know, trying to meet as many entrepreneurs and reach out to as many people and even other entrepreneurs also, you know, don't want to Yeah, their, their VCs are on their boards or whatever. They're like cautious with, with sharing introductions too. So it was a whole thing um, where it was, was just trying to get those intros to the right people. And, and, and it's a real hustle. But but one thing is, I'll say, and where there's always hope is if you're waking up every day and you're doing the work, there's always an iron in the fire. So no matter how hard it gets, there's always this hope because you always have this meeting on the calendar or somebody who's been reviewing your deck or whatever. So ultimately, Rick from Listen and uh, Katerina and Yuri from VC, both great investors, were the first VC institutional investors, you know, saw what we were doing, got really excited. You know, Rick has a lot of great investments and Katerina, you know, was early in Kickstarter and Etsy and, you know, so kind of, you know, the founder of Flickr, so a real visionary investor. And finally, you know, they saw what we were doing. And in those cases, actually at that point, like we'd gotten far enough where it was inbound and, you know, just stuck at it long enough to get that attention. But fundraising for us was really... You know it was hard work
0: apart from not maybe having the network and from fundraising about you know and kind of not being in like the who's who or what have you as you described, what were maybe some of the challenges like the biggest hurdles that investors maybe had with your business when they were evaluating your business
1: i remember this one investor consumer focused investor reached out really early on and uh, said to me, you know, consumer, interesting, but like, why don't you just do a toothbrush? You know, why don't you do a toothbrush? Uh, you know, we, I want to invest in an electric toothbrush company. So I was like, I think there's a bigger opportunity out there than electric toothbrushes. And so I think you could build a brand across categories. I think that it's actually proven with Muji, with Trader Joe's, even maybe with Kirkland, at Costco. Like, I think there's a precedent to show that with direct to consumer, we can go beyond the razor go beyond the toothbrush go beyond the single category brand which was our strategy and this yeah our, our hypothesis that you that could build a brand across categories and he said yeah no nah, you know i think you uh, know we're we're gonna go with toothbrush company. I was a guy at my WeWork who was doing a toothbrush business and they invested $2 million and we were cash strapped. And I thought, yeah, I don't know, Should, should I have gone the toothbrush route? But ultimately, you know, I'm happy with the fact that we stuck to it. So that was common though. The idea of building a brand across categories was really overly complex for investors and consumer investors, as much as they say, you know, want to be investing in the future, visionary, often there is a tendency to be like, okay, well, you know, Dollar Shave Club was a billion dollars. Can we do the same thing in menstrual care? Can we do the same thing in toothbrushes? Can we do the same thing in whatever? So, you know, that was a lot of the pushback, you know, can you build a single brand across categories? And even if you can, why bother? And, you know, one investor even went so far as to show me all of the possible acquirers and how the acquirers would be more interested in acquiring a single category brand. And that as soon as we went in from personal care and pet care and food and these different categories, that suddenly you know, acquirers and they had a list and what kind of companies they acquire and the different multiples and how, and I just thought, you know, we were very close to deal with them, but they were kind of still pushing back on our assortment strategy. I just thought, I don't know, you know, I don't think I can build a business based on what a possible acquirer would possibly think in five years from now. You know, I can't. I just can't. You know, thinking that way is putting an acquirer before a customer, and that's just not the way I think you can build a, a valuable company. So, you know, we didn't go forward there. But that was the main thing I would say is uh, is our assortment strategy and our vision. Ironically, was too big for many consumer-focused investors.
0: That's fascinating because I see decks and I see companies that actually talk about what potential exits could look like and investors tend to hate that because you know why are you right now thinking about what an exit could look like when you know you're still pretty early stage and that's interesting how hearing that perspective and also hearing investors say that they don't like to see that from founders an investor actually telling that to you about what potential exits could be and It's also interesting as well, how we talk a lot about focus and focusing maybe on one product. But in your case, what's interesting is you really from the get-go focus on launching many products. I mean, you started off with 10 and now you've expanded of course into different categories. So that's really compelling and really interesting as well. Just seeing how you really expanded into cross categories. That's really cool. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, I think you build a brand on a set of values, not a set of products. And I think that that's what's resonating. And of course, right? And then the competency you build or that we built was the ability to develop great products, right? And we have a team of people that develops great products. But it even happened to us once where we hired someone there's a, a D2C startup and we hired somebody because they developed, they did develop great products. They do have a great product and they developed something that's really special. But then they, they let go of their some of their key product developers in that category. And we, we brought them on because they were like, okay, well, we're kind of done. You know, we've covered this category. There's only so many SKUs that we could, you know, go into. And so, you know, yeah, I think our thing is we are focused but the team that develops great products can continue to develop, be great at developing great products. And so there's no use for us to dismantle you know, that group.
0: It seems like as well, one of your core values as well as simplicity. And when you have then too many products in one category, that's not quite simplistic, right? So having a few products in a category where the product actually does a specific function, right? Not having two and almost not like cannibalize your own products like that also makes sense as well. I love to also talk about leadership. I know when we first started this conversation, we talked about that conversation you had with the intern about how he or she wanted to be an entrepreneur and how they wanted to lead. And I love to know how you think about your role as CEO and how you think about leadership and making sure that these values you have are very much instilled in public goods.
1: I mean, the role of leadership is, I think, to elicit the best performance out of the people around you and to create an environment where people can thrive and can be at their best, be comfortable being at their best. Sometimes it's developing people, Sometimes it's hiring people. Sometimes it's identifying that somebody should be in one place or not another. Sometimes it's just kind of coaching and talking through problems with, with people. But a company is very much a group of people, collection of people with a common vision. So I think that's a key part of it. And then I think another key part of it is making sure that the communication of the vision of the objective of what's important is always clear i think that's right so you have the right people that are enabled to do their best work and you have communication systems are communicating in a way that makes it really clear what's most important and how that's going to be measured. And I think those are, aside from, you know, the third thing, which is making sure that there's money in the bank, I think that those first two things are are basically the role of leadership.
0: I love that. I love that. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: Oh, you know, I have to say, maybe this is like cliched, but I guess personally, I love Hermann Hess's Siddhartha. Professionally, I have to say, I really loved uh, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah, we've had a couple folks that have said both of those. So excited to add your name to the book list for the website. And what's the best piece of advice that you've received, do you think? Oh, boy. What's the best piece of advice that I've received? No pressure. It's only the best. No pressure. (laughs) Be kind. Love that. Love that. And my final question to you, for anyone building today that's founding a company, no matter where they are in the journey, what is maybe the best piece of advice or learnings that you've been through and experienced for that person?
1: I think the most important thing to succeed To have the stamina the endurance to succeed is to focus on enjoying the process of building rather than the outcome of what might happen once you've built
0: i completely agree enjoy the journey not just you know the end so yeah that's a great great piece of advice well morgan this has been so great thanks so much for your time
1: thanks mike appreciate it
0: speak soon and there you have it it was such a pleasure having morgan on the show You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.